Welcome to the Explore Words Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we're joined by special guests and contributors of V, an empowering celebration of the vulva and vagina. A groundbreaking debut by Florence Schechter, our guest includes Hassa Kureshi and Eliza Rainbow. Recorded live at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, this episode is a shame-free conversation that debunks outdated myths about the vagina and celebrates the female body. Expect an open and frank conversation where nothing is off limits. Hooray! <laughs> I feel like we've kind of already started chatting anyway. Um, it's going to be a lovely, intimate um, session where we talk about vaginas. Are you ready to celebrate vaginas? <laughs> chair, yes, absolutely. Now, I am Rosie Wilby, I am your chair, and I was here at Bradford Literary Festival exactly six years ago in 2017, and I was talking about um, when my first book came out, Is Monogamy Dead? Did anyone actually come to that session? No. I mean, it was excellent. It was really fun. Um, you would have enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> but I just wanted to explain um, the connection and, and who I am and why I've, I've stayed in touch with the festival because it is fantastic. And um, this book was inspired uh, many years ago when I heard that in many surveys, around 50% of people confessed to cheating. So that got me thinking, if you are in a monogamous relationship and you're not cheating, better look closely at your partner. <laughs> Simple math says it has got to be them. And then I went on to um, write a book called The Breakup Monologues, a kind of queer, inclusive, feminist take on breakups and sort of optimistic look at breakups, which actually only really came about because Bradford Literary Festival um, that same year supported the pilot event of a chat show, The Breakup Monologues, which became my podcast that has now released about six different seasons online and it's also a book. So thanks very much to Bradford Literary Festival um, that I am back. Um, as well as Bradford Literary Festival having a little thank you in here, <laughs> I was just amused to remember um, that I do talk about in the book one of my... Um, live recordings and I say every time I take the podcast to a new venue I panic a little about the tech what if we have an amazing discussion and it's lost forever that's exactly what happened at the pilot at Bradford Literary Festival bizarrely we had to change venue at the last minute due to a swarm of bees <laughs> which is just like a really interesting reason for a, a venue to be changed at the last minute uh, we've, we're not changing venues due to any swarms of bees um today and what's really great is over the years I've also presented a queer radio show and until I got here I thought I'd interviewed both of you on it although Amazon tells me that you uh, you didn't actually you couldn't make it on the day you but I know that I've definitely interviewed the wonderful Florence Schexer all about the Vagina Museum and I think it was about 2019 and it was obviously slightly earlier days looking for a permanent home and we're going to hear all about well, your adventures with telling the world about vaginas and wanting us to understand more about vaginas and celebrate them um, in the same way we might celebrate certain other <laughs> genitalia. Uh, but let me do uh, your official introduction. Florence Schechter 
is the director and founder of the Vagina Museum. Her background is in science communication and she has a degree in biochemistry from the University of Birmingham. Since it opened in 2019 in Camden Market, the Vagina Museum has been covered in international news from the New York Times to the Lancet to Time magazine to even appearing in a joke in SNL's Weekend Update. Mm. Her debut book, that's my copy there, B, An Empowering Celebration of the Vulva and Vagina, is published by Penguin Random House, and it's out now, everyone. You can, you can get copies after this talk if you find it very, very exciting and fascinating. And we also have one of the contributors uh, to this book, because there are lots of, kind of peppered throughout, there are little, well, little sort of brief anecdotes from people stories of uh, their own activism or their relationship to their bodies and so on, um, as well as, well, lots of fascinating diagrams, illustrations, facts, myths, myth muff-busting, as you often like to say. Um, but Amazon, Amazon Letty, is an LGBTQ advocate, keynote speaker, former competitive natural bodybuilder, athlete, published author, and cultural change leader. And I'm sure you're going to tell us a lot more about what you do because there's all kinds of different things that you've done Amazon um, but I'm going to start um, with you Florence um, because I think everybody really needs to hear about your journey <laughs> of why you decided to set up a vagina museum and how challenging it's been to make that a reality and how you've made it into the incredible success that has been covered worldwide and is now a book. Wow, yeah, um, I'm just so excited about the Vagina Museum. Um, has anyone here been to the Vagina Museum? Oh, Woo! nice, yay. yay! Did you go to the Camden one or the Bethnal Green one? Bethnal Green. Bethnal Green, oh. oh. Did anyone go to the Camden one? Oh, nice, okay. Well, for anyone who doesn't know, basically in 2017, um, I was working as a science communicator and I made a video that was top 10 animal penises, um, <laughs> which did very well online. The SEO, it's very good on that. Um, and uh, I wanted to make a follow-up video uh, that was top 10 animal vaginas. And um, I could not find very much research. And I found that there's actually a statistical bias against vagina research. Um, uh, so I was chatting to a friend of mine about this. She had just been to Reykjavik in Iceland and she'd been to the Penis Museum. And she was like, oh, Florence, there's a Penis Museum in Iceland. I bet the Vagina Museum and you could find, like ask the curator all about animal vaginas. Um, so I Googled it and uh, there was absolutely nothing. There was no Vagina Museum anywhere. There was a sort of like online project. There's like a bunch of medical museums. There's like sex museums, there's women's museums, but there was no Vagina Museum. So um, I did the most, the most millennial thing ever, and I tweeted about it. Um, I just put online, oh, there's a penis museum in Iceland, but there's no vagina museum anywhere in the world. We should like make one. And then I was like, oh no, we should make one. Yeah. Um, and here I am six years later. <laughs> <laughs> just it's did that. Fantastic. Uh, whilst you were talking about animal vaginas, that reminded me of something fantastic that came up when we did chat. Um, those years ago and you told me that hyenas have particularly large clitorises they do. Um, and I remember saying oh, I bet that's why they're always laughing 
Um, actually, interesting clitoris fact that I've been speaking about a bit recently is um, bonobos have mm. large front-facing clitorises, mm -hmm. which make it really easy for the females to have a really great time with one another. Mm -hmm. um, and so bonobo society is matriarchal, everyone. So... Yeah. yeah, we should just all be <laughs> rubbing our clitorises together and, yeah. Well, well, but it is harder for us, isn't it? Well, no. Well, no. Well, I oh. mean, in okay, so... Oh, right, we're going to yes, learn about scissoring. Okay. <laughs> quick, yeah, yes! Not Let's quite, get into it. <laughs> quick, very quick uh, uh, bonobo fact since you brought it up, because this is my favourite thing in the whole entire world. So, have you ever wondered why our clitorises are so far away from our vaginas? Because there are lots of animals where clitorises are at the entrance to the vagina, like the pig, for example. That's why the pigs have 30-minute orgasms. Because, <laughs> like, like, sex is good. <laughs> Sorry, was that the first time you learned that? Yeah. They have I knew about the hyenas and the bonobos, yeah. but that was a new one. Oh, well, there you go. So, basically, this is uh, why are human clitorises so far away from the vagina? This is a question scientists have often asked themselves. It's something I often ask myself. Um, and there's a primatologist called Franz de Vos who has a theory that we used to do what bonobos do. So, bonobos, females, the way they have sex, very sexually named, it's called G to G rubbing, where basically one bonobo will be like on all fours like this. And then, sorry, I'm gonna give a little demonstration. We can try it later, Blosey. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the other bonobo will like hang off her like a sloth like this. And then their vulvas line up like this and their clitorises will be perfectly aligned. And then they rub their vulvas side to side like this and they'll come in like 30 seconds. <laughs> Genuinely. And um, uh, so this primatologist believes that the reason our vulvas look like that is because we evolved to facilitate lesbian sex, just like the bonobos. Yeah. So, so pe people say, oh, you know, God made Adam and Eve, not, you know, but actually evolution made evened Genevieve. Ah. Yeah. So, but where, where my wife and I go wrong is that I need to hang off her like a sloth. Yes. Right, okay. Yes. I need I'll to send you an instructional video. Need okay, I yeah. need proper diagrams. <laughs> I didn't know we were going to get right into Sorry, all this part. Right, but it was, you know, animal vaginas, why not? Um, <laughs> and also with the book, let's sort of bring Amazon in as, as well, because you do talk a lot about the sort of intersection, well, lots of intersections, but the intersection of activism and celebrating our bodies and how how do those sort of things line up for you and we'll, we'll bring Amazon in in a moment yeah well I mean people often ask me like why did you start the vagina museum and I'm like so I don't know if you've heard of it but there's this thing called the patriarchy mm -hmm. <laughs> don't know if you've oh, ever really? come across <laughs> it um, uh, but obviously, like when we're trying to fight the patriarchy, there's a lot of other things that we also have to fight at the same time. You know, no fight exists on its own. So we also have to be fighting white supremacy, ableism, classism, all of those things. And if we want to live in a world where the vagina can be celebrated, we have to be activists. Um, and that's why I was so excited to bring people like Amazon onto the book. Well, Amazon, do you want to tell us about your work and what led you to, con I don't know, how you sort of came to be contributing to the book and, and what you've written. So I met um, Florence while this was still a concept and I had read about all her work and I thought about my activism around body celebration, particularly in sport, and I reached out to Florence and then kind of since then I've become a board advisor for the Vagina Museum, kind of like the rest is history. So my background is in sports. Um, I've been an athlete all my life. 
Um, I do a lot of global advocacy work now with Fortune 500 companies, governments. I've worked with the White House. I was part of the Team Biden campaign and Asian and LGBTQ <coughs> issues. And I just do a lot of activism around equality and celebrating bodies around sports. Because if you look at the climate, there's always been this policing around women in sports, around how we dress, how we perform, what we look like, what a woman is. There's this very good documentary that's come out through the Human Rights Watch Festival called Category Women. And it goes into great depths of how women are policed behind the scenes in the Olympics that we don't hear about. And um, Princess Anne, she was excluded from this. So women have to prove that they are women to compete in the Olympics. And they get an official card to say if you're a woman or not. And just to clarify, do the men have to do this? No, of course no, not. No, of course not. <laughs> of course not. And so the woman who was behind category woman, she was a professional Olympic athlete. And she said, you know, I got a card that said I was a woman. And then when you get that official card, then you can compete in the Olympics. And this has been going on for a very long time, but we don't hear about all of this. And if you didn't get this card, then you'd go to the next line to be examined. And these examinations are done by men and you have to take your clothes off to show your genitalia, to do doping, you have to do all of these things. And so the Olympics and the IOC have a certain standard in terms of what they categorize as women. But then when you go down to the local level, so for example, Team Ghana or different countries, it then kind of filters and becomes very vague into what they say is what is a woman. So a lot of the policing happens to be around Asian and black bodies in terms of you know, our structure, our facial features, um, the fact that if we run faster, we're not then categorized as what a woman looks like. Wow, really interesting how many different areas your work and the book covers um but maybe to sort of get back down to some of the nitty-gritty um of vaginas and <laughs> vulvas um <laughs> t i mean tell us a little bit about you i mean one of the things that I, I found interesting and empowering is how you talk about how they all look so different um and i think you've got some great illustrations <laughs> yeah. as well actually <laughs> there's a because we kind of all feel insecure that ours looks funny don't we mm. so this is one of my favorite pages in the book yes lots of different vulvas um it, and also just to clarify what's the difference vulva and vagina just oh to yes explain of course to just quick uh, so vulva is everything on the outside yep. basically and then vagina is just the tube part Got where it. like you know things go in things go out yes <laughs> <laughs> yes right. um the illustrations were done by this amazing illustrator called nadia akinbule um, who I'm just completely and utterly in love with. And we picked her for the um, book because we commissioned her for a, a sample um, illustration and it was someone with their feet in stirrups getting a cervical screen and the um, person in the chair had hairy legs. And I was like, yeah, it's her. She's the illustrator. Done. Oh, <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and so are these all like people's real 
were they based on real people's volvos? Yes, yeah, so the volvos um, are based, I can't remember which database she used, but there's a few different databases. So they're based off photos of real volvos. Um, I think the one she used was Gynodiversity, which is a database uh, that anyone can submit to, actually. And it's oh. a database of volvo photographs just taken by anyone who wants to have a camera there's a whole like shooting guide on their website if you want to submit um i've been planning to do it as like a staff team building day <laughs> <laughs> we're all going to submit our photos yeah. um because there's because it's so interesting because you on there there's they literally have hundreds of photos ones with hair ones without hair and we took these photos and we actually in the Bethnal Green one, some of the Bethnal Green visitors can attest to this, we had a Volvo wall. We had a wall of photos of all the different Volvos. Amazing. It's my favourite thing in the whole world because people in the Vagina Museum, they would stare at it for ages. You could see it from the street, actually, if you look through the window. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> they would be walking down the street and they'd look through the window and they'd be like, is that a wall of Volvo photographs? And then people would stand in front of it for ages. Um, one of my favourite ones was when I walked past and a group of midwives were looking at it and they were all like, oh, this person didn't have some great stitching. Uh, you know, <laughs> that, that person's had quite a few babies, I can see that. And they were like analysing the, the photos. <laughs> oh, wow, amazing. And what, what was the range of people that would come into the, that do come into mm. the Vagina Museum? Uh, we genuinely get all sorts of people. I mean, our sort of core audience, and when I say core audience, it's probably about half of the people who come in, are sort of like women aged sort of 18 to 34, so tend to be a little left-leaning, quite progressive, that sort of thing. But the other half of people, honestly, anyone. We've had single dads come in with their daughters, uh, especially because we just had an exhibition about periods. So uh, a lot of single dads would come right. to us and they'd be like, I need to have a, dis a discussion with my daughter about puberty. And I don't know how to do that because no one ever did that with me. And I now don't have, you know, I don't have a, a person who's been through that to tell them. So I um, thought I'd bring them to the exhibition and you can answer any questions they have. <laughs> um, but we get, uh, we get lots of families, we get students. At Camden, we got a lot of teenage boys skiving from school. <laughs> that was really fun. Um, we've well, had I mean, it's educational for them. Oh, it is. I mean, it's probably Genuinely. better than a school lesson, to be honest. Do I you mean, you know what was my sex education at school? Oh God, dear. you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of my favourite things ever was when we we're in Camden Market, and I was sitting on the front desk, which I quite often do. And um, a group of teenage boys came in, and they were like looking at this like worksheet that we have, and they were like, "Oh, Miss, 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 could I see a real vagina here?" Um, and because the landlords of Camden Market are not very nice people, we weren't allowed to have photographs of vulvas in. Camden Market, yeah. I know, but we, that's why in Bethnal Green we did, and in our new location we will as well. Um, right. So I, I just joked with them, and I was like, oh, you can't see a photo of a real Volvo here, but maybe somewhere else in Camden. And they all laughed, and they're like, oh, miss, you're funny, you're so funny, miss, miss, miss. <laughs> and then they came over, and we're like joking, and we're chatting, we spent about 15 minutes just like chatting, building this rapport, and then at some point, one of them showed um, the worksheet to me, and the worksheet is like the Volvo anatomy, and it's like name the parts, and he said, Miss, you know, like, if you're with a girl, right? <laughs> like, with a girl. Yeah. Um, could you put it in the wrong hole? And he pointed, not at the anus, as one might th think, but the urethra. Ah, I was Yeah. Wow. No, and I was like, no, no, you'd, re you'd have to work hard. And I, and I said that to him. I was like, oh, no, you, you know, you really couldn't, but whatever. And then suddenly, 
they're all asking me these questions. Just like this floodgate opens, they're asking me so many different questions where it's clearly like they didn't want to ask their mates at school because they didn't want to show that they were the ones who didn't know about sex. They were too afraid to Google it because like, you know, who's trustworthy on the internet? And then they found a person in a safe space who was trustworthy and wasn't going to shame them for asking these questions. Mm -hmm. They were like, this is my chance. I have to take this. I have to ask them every <laughs> question I have. And we, we ended up chatting for about an hour with these teenage boys. It was amazing. Oh. I'm, I mean, talking about the anatomy and sort of sex and sexual pleasure, I mean, I think for many, many women, it's a long time before we realise, I think, I think you talk about in the book, how it's just the tip of the iceberg, the clitoris, in terms of what we know about and what we can see. I, it was a long time. It was probably I was in my 40s before I knew that it's massive and it's far more extensive than just this little sort of pea that we can can kind of see um why why do we not know so is it the patriarchy again why do we not know about our pleasure and our you know our sexuality and and how how the clitoris works and how how incredible it is um yeah well uh, so just in case anyone here doesn't know um the clitoris which is the little button on the front of the uh, vulva it actually extends inwards into our anatomy and then branches off into these two big branches that go behind the labia and it, so it's actually a huge organ that most of it is internal and we've actually known about it for hundreds of years mm. um we have uh uh, and anatomical illustrations of it from this German anatomist in the 1840s. Um, but it was completely ignored. Like, literally, there's, so there was a copy of Gray's Anatomy that was published in the 1940s that on their diagram of the vulva, they literally removed the label for the clitoris. Mm. Um, like, it used to be there and they removed it. And do you know the year that the first peer-reviewed study of the internal clitoris was done? Does anyone here know? Mm. Take a guess. Well, yes. Not, not quite 2000s. It was 1998. Oh, not far yeah, off. Yeah, but not I far off. I guessed that. Yeah, that was, that was the was close. first time. We'd known about the internal clitoris for hundreds of years, um, but female sexual pleasure is just not something that's a priority in our society. And also there are cultural differences mm. as well. I mean, I think of the Asian community. We don't talk about these kinds you wouldn't really sit around the table and say, let's talk mm. about our <laughs> But <laughs> how much of that is to do with colonialism? Yes. Because a lot of the anti-sex and anti-queer laws around the world are because of the British Empire. Like you, if you look at like, you know, South Asia, for example, and how much like positive sex representations there are in like Hindu temples and stuff, mm. like, the Kama Sutra, which is often spoken about, Kama Sutra is just a life manual. It's not just a sex manual. It's, it has instructions on like how to throw a party and how to farm. It's got, but it's got instructions on like how to have sex because it was just a normal part of life. And then what happens? Oh, the British come. Yeah. <laughs> Ruin it for everyone as always. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, also, let's talk about some of the myths that perpetuate about how a vagina should smell because um, mm. there's obviously uh, 
a certain Hollywood actress and her vagina-scented candle. <laughs> <laughs> I mention her briefly in the book, and the legal department at Penguin made me send them so much stuff because they were like, we want to make sure you don't get sued, so you need to back up every single claim you make. And I was like, here's the court transcripts. Here's all the proof that... You, oh, God. So Gwyneth Paltrow... Oh, she's getting more specific. Yeah, we're talking about Gwyneth yeah. Paltrow. <laughs> we're I, allowed to say that. I was lampoon a bit for um, yeah. conscious uncoupling, which is a great idea, but... That sounds <laughs> hideously pretentious yes. because she's uttered it. Um, <laughs> but also, it's, it feels like the most lesbian thing ever. And then for a straight woman to say it, you're like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, <laughs> yeah, only lesbians consciously uncouple. They've been doing it for years because yeah. it's a small community and there's no one else to be friends with. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, okay, I'm going to tell you something completely, utterly absurd about her love of yoni steaming, if you've heard of it. Have you heard of yoni steaming? No, okay, so <laughs> some people, some people not. So basically, this is something that a few years ago became very, very popular because in California, there were all these like very rich white ladies who were like, there's this ancient practice from East Asia called yoni steaming, that, um, where basically what you do is you sit above a pot of steaming herbs and it goes up your vagina and it's supposed to like cleanse your womb and there's a lot of like orientalist image imagery of like it's some ancient chinese practice or something like this um and they charge a lot of money in california for it it doesn't clean your womb obviously i don't know if you've ever seen the size of a hole in a cervix steam is not getting up there um but also your uterus doesn't need cleaning because if your uterus was dirty, then like how would babies grow in it? Obviously, uteruses are actually very clean. They don't need cleaning. Um, and also there's no historical precedence of it. There was a lot of, and I'd love to get your um, opinion on this in a, in a second once I explain the true historical origin of it. So these Gwyneth Paltrow and these Californian women love using, like it's an ancient Asian practice to justify their things. But yoni steaming genuinely did used to be used in the West, and it was called womb fumigation. Yeah, I know, I can see why she rebranded it. It's not very good. <laughs> but basically, uh, all the way from Plato until about the sort of 1700s, it was believed that the womb was an independent animal that lived inside of us. What? Yes, it had its own thoughts, its own desires, and it would wander around the body looking for things to do. And if it got into the wrong place, if it got into your chest, it would give you chest pains. If it got into your neck, it would make you short of breath. If it got into your head, it would make you mad. I don't know if you've ever, uh, you know the uh, origin of the word hysteria. So his, that was called hysteria because hystera is ancient Greek for womb. And so hysteria was the womb in the head. Um, and how do you stop this womb from wandering about your body getting bored? So the obviously the first treatment, I bet you can guess. Is uh, masturbate. Well, oh, no, if only, orgasm. No. If only, Rosie. No. Oh, isn't um, it? Oh, okay. It was uh, occupy it with something, i.e. get pregnant. Oh. Yeah, obviously. Oh, I was thinking about, yeah. you know, when wasn't, wasn't there a sort of a trend of doctors sort of giving woman, <gasps> women an orgasm to oh sort of God. heal them or cure them in some way? Historical myth. Complete oh, fiction, complete oh, fabrication. It? I will talk oh. about that in a second. So I'm just going to give you all no, my interest. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, so basically, I'll very quickly finish the womb fumigation thing. But basically, if getting pregnant didn't work or you couldn't get pregnant because, say, you were unmarried and obviously only you only ever get pregnant if you're married, um, 
the, the logic went, if your womb is an animal, what is an animal's strongest sense? Smell. So put nice smells near your vagina and your womb will go, ooh, what's that? <laughs> and then go back to the right place. Oh, well, yes, yeah. sure. Yeah. Right. So that's what yoni steaming was. <laughs> yeah. So we used to do it in the West, but it was for treating wandering wombs. Um, wow. So now Gwyneth Paltrow, she is um, rebranding this, but saying that it's an Asian thing. And then uh, I'll talk about the masturbation in a second. Mm -hmm. I've only found one possible, there is possibly a mention of it in a Korean medical book from the 1600s. And I've been trying to get a copy of it translated into English, uh, but it's really, really difficult. So, but still, if one tiny mention in one single Korean book from 400 years ago is like not good enough evidence for it being a widespread practice. Um, so very, very briefly, just to set you right on this whole doctors used to masturbate myth, because um, there's a whole movie about it with Hugh Dancy, which I love the movie and Hugh Dancy, oh my God, a bisexual's dream. Fucking love that man um, with Maggie Gyllenhaal, but it's complete fabrication. So basically there was a woman, a historian, who um, a couple of decades ago wrote a book where she was like, I think maybe doctors would have masturbated their patients um, to relieve hysteria. Um, but she had absolutely no evidence for it. She, had, she was just like, this is an idea that I'm excited to explore, but there is literally no historical evidence of it. But journalists just loved the idea of uh, <laughs> patients going to their doctors in Victorian times and being like, I feel so bad. Do you want to do something about it? <laughs> um, and that now it's sort of entered into the public uh, sphere as like knowledge, but it's complete fabrication. And in fact, um, that is something doctors would have never done because of opinions of sex in the Victorian times. So a lot of people think that Victorian times in England was very anti-sex. That was actually not true. They were very pro-sex in certain situations. Mm -hmm. So they did believe that women in heterosexual marriages should be enjoying sex. And there were like manuals of like how to please your wife. Um, but they did not approve of any kind of sexual pleasure outside of those bounds. So no masturbation, no homosexuality, no, uh, no sex before marriage, um, nothing that was considered sodomy. Sodomy is anything that's non-procreative sex. So oral, for example, oh. it's not just anal. Um, and they, uh, the, 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 the doctors were very, very against it. And I'm about to say something that is quite horrible. Um, so I'm just going to trigger warning for FGM here. So if anyone doesn't want me to talk about it, I'm happy to just skip over it. Okay, so basically there was in Victorian, I around the 1860s, there was this British doctor based in London called Isaac Baker Brown. He published an entire book about how to relieve hysteria by doing a clitoridectomy, i.e. the surgical removal of the clitoris. Um, this was, so the idea that doctors wanked off their patients absolute fabrication because what they were really genuinely doing and we have evidence for this because he writes, wrote an entire book about it as they were cutting their clitorises off. In 1967, he was actually struck off from the uh, medical council of, or whatever it was at the time because they found out that he was doing these without his patient's consent. So, which I find firstly insane because they were like, we're fine with you doing it as long as you like have the permission from their husbands. But as soon as the, the husbands didn't know about it, Suddenly, it wasn't okay. Wow. Yeah. So then, woman has no say about her body whatsoever. No. That's not very long ago. No, 1860s. Yeah. Where did the whole invention 
So, the first ever vibrator was invented by a guy called Granville. Um, <laughs> and I know, sorry, that's things name. I know. But yeah, it is a good name. Um, and it was for the relief of muscle, muscle tension. And uh, if you Google it later, it's really interesting. And it was like, you know, um, on a piano, there's a little hammer that goes like this to play the strings. It was like that. It was a humongous machine that had a little arm that went on your body like this. So I'm sure you can imagine it was not near anybody's clitoris. Uh, and in fact, he quite specifically said, I'm not going to test it on women because women are weak and would not be able to handle such vibrations. Um, and so that was how the first vibrator was made. Eventually, better vibrator, vibration mechanisms were made and humans did what humans always do and said, I'm going to use this for sex. Um, so that's, that's the history of vibrators. It's a very interesting book called Buzz. If you oh, great time. Yeah, it is. Well, we might as well open it up for <laughs> questions um, as we've kind of started. Um, and so really any of you who've got a comment or a question or, yeah, something, something you'd like to contribute in some way, just um, raise your hand. And we do or have a handheld mic or as well. Hang or if you would like to sort of hang from the banners in a sloth-like um, <laughs> <laughs> position, that, that is fine too. Yes. I was just going to say, um, coming back to the steaming method, <laughs> fumigation, mm. whatever you want to call it, um, and how celebrities like Gwyneth Paltrow um, make money off it, I think it's... Uh, I was just wondering what you thought about... Um, the fact that it does work because so many women who watch this or listen to her or see her on Instagram or TikTok or whatever have such like internalized misogyny of themselves to be able to consider doing that to themselves. Mm. Um, I was just wondering how much you think that relates to the sort of success of what these celebrities are doing. Well, I mean, it's all a big self-perpetuating cycle, isn't it? In that society tells us that your body is disgusting, so you believe that your body is disgusting, so you try and find ways to uh, go around it. So, for example, and then you might decide, oh, I'm going to be sensible, I'm going to go to an actual doctor, and then I'm sure there are plenty of people here who have had terrible experiences to the doctor, where you go to them and you say, like, oh, you know, my period is so painful, please help me, and they'll go, periods are supposed to be painful, come back to me when you have a real problem. Like, how many people does that happen to? Um, and so many think people will go to their doctors about hundreds of things, get dismissed, ignored. So, enter people like Gwyneth Paltrow, who are like, oh, is your doctor ignoring you? Come to me. Yeah, I have the answer. That's why <laughs> douches are so popular, for example. So douching is, you know, cleaning the inside of your vagina um, with a liquid. You don't need to do that. Your vagina is entirely self-cleaning. You do not need... It's just like, you know, your eyes. You don't need to clean your eyes in the same way you need to clean the rest of your face. But if something goes wrong, you go to a doctor and you get a proper medication. If you have a problem with your, the inside of your vagina, you go to your doctor to get a medication, obviously. I'm saying that with the understanding that's not always a good option. Anyway, so um, when you're not, when the basically capitalist forces are filling a niche where the medical industry has failed us, and the only reason it's able to do that because we live in a society uh, that allows that to happen. And that's why we have to dismantle the patriarchy, but we also have to dismantle capitalism. We also have to dismantle the white supremacy involved in uh, yoni steaming. Um, there's a lot of things we have to do. And 
yeah, like she's so successful because it's all going round in a circle and a circle and then it doesn't work. So what are you going to do? You're just going to buy more, aren't you? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting sort of thinking about how the doctors, <laughs> when we do go to our doctors, sometimes we don't always get what we what we need. And another thing, of course, you talk about is perimenopause. Um, I mean, I'm looking around and lo lots of women may not be quite old enough yet, but I'm certainly in the perimenopausal um, phase. And when I first went about some of my symptoms, I, you know, you rang up on the day to get an appointment. Of course, I got a man who was rubbish, but then I did go and see a woman. But um, And it is fortunately very easy now to get HRT or certainly easier than it was my mum was never able to get it um, and um, yeah so maybe tell us a little bit about you know sort of women at that sort of time of life that you've maybe spoken to about their experiences mm. gosh it's it's also again it's very variable because it depends on the particular doctor you get mm. HRT is a lot more um, widely available nowadays mm. um, which is great but it does I have I have spoken to some people who when they go to their doctors for any type of menopause, they just go, oh, here, have some hormones, have some hormones. And it's just in the same way that like the pill is used for uh, younger women of like, oh, you have period pain. You know, there's no actual treatment for endometriosis. There's no actual treatment for fibroids except to like invasive surgeries. There's no, and the doctors just go, oh, have the pill, have the pill. And then you reach a certain age and they go, have HRT, have HRT. And it's just the same, it's like the past where it was like, oh, yeah. it's just hysteria, hysteria. And then that changed to, uh, oh, it's just anxiety. <laughs> oh, just have the pill. Oh, it just, it feels like hundreds of years of doctors just being like, why are you wasting my time? Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Let me get to some real problems, you know? Like erectile dysfunction. Oh yeah, well, we need to sort that out, don't yeah. we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do we have more questions and comments? I was curious to know where the um, vagi uh, vagina smells uh, comment was going to go. I'm not <laughs> sure if it was going to yes. go somewhere apart from that. Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, do you remember earlier? Yeah, oh, raised did that. We kind of end and, up and that may have been where topic. it was supposed to go, but I was also curious to know if it was going to go somewhere else. I suppose I was just I was just sort of asking about how we feel um, self-conscious or, or uneasy about how it's supposed to smell and. Um, yeah, I yeah. suppose I was just asking about about if there is a, a vagina smell yeah. or whether we Well, they're all beautiful and unique <laughs> in the way they smell. And what I will say is that um, uh, they are supposed to smell like vaginas. They're not supposed to smell like peonies um, <laughs> or, or bergamot, as Gwyneth Paltrow seems to think. Um, uh, they're supposed to smell like vaginas, so please never be ashamed of the way your vagina smells. Um, if it does smell fishy, that is actually a sign of infection, and it annoys me to this day that people think that they're supposed to smell fishy. They're not. Mm -hmm. If they are, it's usually a sign of bacterial vaginosis. Um, so go get that checked out. Right. Okay. We do, at some point, want to do a scratch and sniff at the Vagina Museum. Ah! <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Um, well, let's um, take the question that was at the back there. Hi, um, I'm Rachel. I'm a, a local lesbian feminist, lesbian retired feminist still fighting. <laughs> um, I crochet vulvas. You may have come across them. <laughs> I've given you one in the past. <laughs> um, for once when you were here last. Um, I, I don't agree with everything the panel has said, but I think it's really important that we're having this discussion and especially important for young women. I still come across a lot of young women who are absolutely horrified and disgusted 
even at the concept of, of saying the word. And it really concerns me, coming back to what you were saying, Rosie, about sex education in schools, that actually our young people are getting sex education from exploitative porn, which is yeah. educating women about what they are supposed to desire and educating men as, as to what they think girls are meant to desire. And it, it really concerns me that, although I think the conversation is getting a bit more open, young women still are subject to really um, horrible kind of internal oppression about their own bodies. Mm. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, like, we, you know, we've got the internet now, um, but the messaging's still the same. We still live in the same oppressive society. The fact that we have an, the internet doesn't change that. And the internet is such a double-edged sword. Mm. By the age of 14, 40% uh, of kids in this country will have seen online porn. By the time they get to 16, 60% of kids will have seen online porn. Um, and if you want to learn about the effects of free online porn, I highly recommend the podcast, The Butterfly Effect by John Ronson. Mm. It's a really good mm -hmm. uh, investigation onto the effects it's had on our society. I think we've got time maybe for one more. We yeah. did have someone with their hand up there. Uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you. This has been a really eye-opening discussion. Um, I've just left school, finished my A-levels last week. Oh, um, my God, congrats! <laughs> 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 um, but I just want to talk a bit more about sex ed because the only sex education I've ever had in school was in year nine where we had one lesson just on STDs. Mm -hmm. And one lesson on how to put a condom on a banana. Mm. <laughs> I was more than I got. <laughs> um, and that was it. And mm. I think that's really, I guess, troubling. Because mm. the only way that I've managed to learn about my body and myself is from um, the internet and podcasts and books like this. Mm. But I've also kind of had to be aware of trying to fight off going down like the pornography route and seeing the way that women are treated in pornography, specifically women of colour. Um, and I just I just think that, um, I know that this is not our teacher's fault, but I do think that the government definitely needs to do more with sex ed, starting from maybe, I mean, it's controversial, but maybe in primary school, learning oh, the very, very basics and You're absolutely right, get yeah. more and more, yeah. more and more developed in high school. Yeah. I, I completely agree with you. I'm sorry you had such a sh shit sex education. Um, I went to a faith school. Um, I'm Jewish. And the only session we had on sex ed, other than the national curriculum stuff of like, these are how babies are made, please don't ask me any more questions, was we had one session on domestic violence and that was it because domestic violence is a big problem in my community. Um, so I, I literally didn't even get taught about condoms. Um, the government made sex education mandatory a few years ago, but parents can still opt their children out of it. Um, and there's also no real oversight on how good that sex education is. So at some schools, if you have a really great teacher who is like invested in making a good program, you can have amazing sex education. But as soon as that teacher leaves and there's no one to take up the baton, you can go back to some really, really bad sex education. Mm -hmm. And it's it's so variable across the country. Um, and pornography is a massive problem. I have a... So I want to say, firstly, I'm not anti-porn. I think porn is... Uh, totally fine in certain circumstances. I think if it is ethically made and it is ethically distributed, I think we are humans and adults and we should be allowed to do what we want. The problem comes with the free mainstream online porn, uh, specifically if you want to know about it, the company called MindGeek, it basically changed the face of our planet by putting free porn on the internet and it changed the way that we um, 
view sex completely and utterly radically. And um, this is a huge problem in schools for children because they're like seeing this stuff that they would have never seen. Um, uh, like this, this is an entirely new social issue that we're having to face. And I'm a friend with a lot of teachers and these teachers have to teach their kids about porn. And they're like, this is not what I signed up for when I became a maths teacher in 2006 or whatever. And they even have to teach them about child pornography laws because now everyone has a smartphone. If someone under the age of 16 takes a naked photo of themselves and sends it to their boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever, weirdly enough, that is committing a crime, but they are also the victim of that same crime. It's a really weird like, legal thing where they're both the perpetrator and the victim of the crime. And so they're having to teach these children about child pornography in their schools, just the state of this country. And the, the government tried, I don't know if you know this, but the government a few years ago tried to make the internet safer. And they said, we're going to make it so that before you log into a porn website or you visit a porn website, you're going to have to put in some kind of ID to prove that you're over 18. And everyone went, oh, what a good idea, what a good idea, giving our identity documents to porn companies. <laughs> of course, and the only company, the only for, uh, company that was consulting on that law, guess who it was? MindGeek. Oh. Yes. So just the whole state of it is terrible. There's my, there's my uh, thesis, my rant. We should, we should end on a happy note. Tell us a joke, Rosie. You're a comedian. <laughs> Oh, well, gosh, I mean... <laughs> oh, no, I have, a, I have a joke that I loved saying. Um, uh, okay, this is my vagina joke that I say in, like, all my talks. I said it at The Guilty Feminist. It went down really badly, so I'm hoping that you'll like it. You promise you'll all laugh. Yeah. Okay, so here's a fun fact. Vaginas, between your reproductive years, so between puberty and menopause, they're about pH 3.8. Uh, on the other sides of those, before puberty, after menopause, about pH 7. But between that, it's about pH 3.8. It's quite acidic. It's about the same pH as white wine. <laughs> and I knew there was a reason I liked putting both of those in my mouth. <laughs> yeah! Actually, um, yeah, I have a vagina-related joke as well. Um, and um, when uh, my girlfriend and I, before we got married, we were trying to spice things up, we tried a few things, including this cream that you can get in Ann Summers called Pussy Rub, if you heard of this. Oh. It's supposed to intensify your orgasms. Don't bother, just a mild burning sensation. Um, <laughs> But what I thought was really strange was on the shelf in Ann Summers where they sell the pussy rub, they actually had a tester. Oh, no! Are <laughs> well, you going to try it in the shop? Hopefully you just put it on so, your wrist or something. So, so I did, yeah. yeah. No, but I mean, somebody might think, oh, well... Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, anyway, oh, no. I did think that was funny. Um, uh, obviously, there will now be a book signing. There's a bookstore just up the stairs, isn't there? And so if you would like Florence to sign a wonderful message in a copy of this wonderful book then do go and see her um, Amazon hopefully will be chatting around to staying around to chat as well um, I think they have some copies of my book The Breakup Monologues if you do want to kind of have a fun take on breakups and hear about me going to um, participate in a sex lab where I had to insert a plasithmograph into my vagina and have my arousal monitored while I looked <laughs> at erotic imagery the control clip they show you in between is a David Ashton Bernicchio documentary um, <laughs> which was uh, interesting <laughs> not oh measuring gosh. your arousal during that um but also I know oh, david attenborough has a very nice voice <laughs> yes um but anyway so yeah we should wrap up because um we've just ever so slightly overrun sorry bradford literary festival um but thank you for having us thank you for all your fantastic comments and questions and contributions and uh, have a lovely sunny day